Welcome to the new Arab Voice, our podcast bringing you compelling stories and deep dives from the Middle East, Africa, Asia, and beyond. Hello and welcome to the first episode of Season 2 of The New Arab Voice, a podcast featuring unfiltered voices from the Middle East, North Africa, and beyond. It's Friday the 14th of May and I am your host, Gaia Karamatsa, coming to you from London. Here is what we'll be covering today. From Sheikh Jarrah to strikes in Gaza, we'll be covering the latest escalations between Israel and Palestine. On Saturday, Palestinians around the world will remember the Nakba of 1948. We'll explore the legacy of this catastrophe and speak to experts about why it never really ended for the residents of the occupied territories. Then, stay tuned to hear our interview with British-Egyptian author Yusra Imran, who spoke about how her book, Hijab and Red Lipstick, was a way to express the many intricacies of growing up as a woman between the Gulf and the West. You are able and capable to practice the faith um, on your own terms in a way that's true to yourself. And men are not the gatekeepers to religion. Today started with more airstrikes in Gaza, this tiny, densely packed territory, just 25 miles long, five miles across, given a deadly wake-up call. At the time of recording this episode, Palestine is on fire. Increased Israeli violence has led to the deaths of 119 Palestinians, including 31 children and wounding more than 830 people, according to Gaza's health minister. This has been the result of three days of intense Israeli airstrikes on the besieged land strip. The Israeli army said its overnight operation involved fighter jets and tanks allegedly hitting a Hamas tunnel network dug under civilian areas. The bombardment saw huge fireballs turn the night sky orange as explosions rocked the ground. In response, Hamas has launched anti-tank missiles and rockets into Israel, which has killed seven Israelis. This culmination of violence follows the planned forced expulsion of Palestinian families in Sheikh Jarrah, violence against worshippers at Al-Aqsa Mosque, and attacks by ultranationalist Israelis and settlers. To understand more about the context of this story, I spoke to my colleague at The New Arab, Diana Al-Ghul, who is a British-Palestinian journalist covering the events on the ground. So, Diana, why is this forced expulsion different than those that took place in occupied East Jerusalem before? I wouldn't say they're completely different because they still fall under the umbrella of Israel's systemic ethnic cleansing of Palestinians. However, when it comes to Sheikh Jarrah specifically, we need to take it back to the Nakba, where Palestinians were mass exodus out of their land in historic Palestine, but is now called modern day Israel. So by 1956, Sheikh Jarrah in East Jerusalem had refugees from the Palestinians who had survived the Nakba. And at that point, Sheikh Jarrah and East Jerusalem were under Jordanian control. 
So in the 1960s, talks began to give those refugees permanent residency and ownership of the land that they had fled to. But that process was cut short in 1967 when um, Israel took over the West Bank and East Jerusalem in a move that has not been recognised by the international community, but they did it after a victory in the 67 war. So in 1970, Israel enacted this law called the Legal and Administrative Matters Law, which allows Jewish Israelis to claim land in East Jerusalem. They did this by claiming that that was their land before the Nakbir. No paperwork was required, no proof was required. And by the 1990s, these committees that claimed parts of Sheikh Jarrah or claimed communities um, within them had decided to sell their land to a settler organization called Nahlat Shimon, who had since then been working on the mass dispossession of Palestinians inside Sheikh Jarrah. Um, currently, there are eight families who are targets right now. Mm. And tensions have been rising since the holy month of Ramadan. Why is that? So this is typical. During the beginning of Ramadan, Palestinians were being provoked. Um, The Damascus Gate was closed. This is normally a gate where Palestinians, especially youth, just like to sit and socialise during or after the prayers. They weren't allowed to do so. The director of Al-Aqsa Mosque was summoned by the Israeli intelligence as well at some point and Violence really kicked off when the Israeli police decided to upscale their attacks on worshippers. The United Nations Middle East envoy warned that this is escalating into a full-scale war. And it's been the worst descent into violence since the 2014 conflict between Israel and Hamas. What triggered this escalation and what does it mean for the future of Palestinians? So when Hamas fired their rockets into Jerusalem, they said that it was in reaction to the um, human rights abuses taking place in Sheikh Jarrah, but also um, at around Al-Aqsa Mosque, Palestinians have been shot with rubber-coated steel bullets and they've been tear-gassed. Women and children have also been attacked around the mosque. So what triggered these rockets firing into Jerusalem from Hamas was, from their words, um, the escalations that took place in East Jerusalem. Um, Currently, I'm not very optimistic about the situation, just as the UN. I do fear that it will escalate. Um, I pray that I'm wrong, but it does seem like it's going in that direction. Do you think that the international community is doing enough to resolve the situation on the ground? There is a huge lack of accountability for holding Israel to account um, for the violence that has been taking place. Israel, as an occupying power, has responsibilities to the Palestinians living inside the territories. And Gaza is in an open air prison right now and is under a crippling siege to the extent in which it is pretty much uninhabitable. So we need sanctions on Israel at the moment. We need the International Criminal Court to trial Israeli officials for war crimes. And we need to expand the conversation from 
certain pockets of violence to the context of violence in which Palestinians live. There have been a lot of people speaking out on social media, including celebrities and human rights activists across the world, speaking out against the crimes committed by Israelis against Palestinians and the tragedy that is going on in Gaza and the West Bank. Is this usually the case? Has there been an upsurge in support for the Palestinian cause? And if so, why do you think that is? There is a surge in support for Palestinians at the moment because the situation has escalated on the ground and Palestinians inside occupied East Jerusalem have led extraordinary social media campaigns and efforts to get the word out. So in terms of what people can do in solidarity, from speaking to people inside occupied East Jerusalem, what they have told me is every tweet matters every um, reposting of a hashtag matters, every donation matters, and just every form of support matters. They need people to talk on their social media profiles with their friends and with their family to help others who may not be as well-versed on the conflict understand it better. I do think that we need to talk about Palestine a lot more, even when it's not something that is currently trending or it hasn't fled up there are millions of misconceptions around the cause and we should be allowed to answer questions and people who have misconceptions should be allowed to ask them without any shame fear or guilt so the conversation must go on after this but use this situation to repost support and plant seeds of knowledge hope love peace and joy that was British-Palestinian journalist for The New Arab, Diana Al-Ghul, on the plight of the Palestinians. For the latest developments in Palestine, I urge our listeners to visit our website at thenewarab.co.uk. Coming up, Hugo Goodridge will cover why the latest escalations in Sheikh Jarrah and Gaza are a product of a long line of Palestinian oppression, which started with the Nakba in 1948. The recent events in Sheikh Jarrah, as well as the escalations at the Al-Aqsa Mosque, are the latest in a long line of oppressive actions that have targeted the Palestinian people, a line of oppression that some say started with the Nakba, Arabic for catastrophe. The Nakba was one of the earliest injustices to be meted out to the Palestinian people and became a tragedy was immortalised not just in the hearts and minds of the people of Palestine, but also in the calendar. On the 15th of May each year, Palestine and the world observes Nakba Day. In 1948, uh, the Israeli army and before that uh, Zionist uh, paramilitary groups uh, conducted an operation that today probably we would call it ethnic cleansing. Ilan Pepe is an Israeli historian and social activist and professor with the College of Social Sciences and International Studies at the University of Exeter. Uh, within nine months, uh, the Israeli army destroyed half of Palestine's villages, uh, nearly 500 or even more, demolished uh, 11 Palestinian uh, towns and emptied them from uh, their Arab inhabitants in, in places where there used to be mixed Arab-Jewish towns, 
uh, and expelled the half of Palestine's population uh, uh, and, and made the half of the Palestinian uh, uh, refugees. Terror, violence and bloodshed were employed by the newly created State of Israel, backed by Jewish militias, to force men, women and children from their homes. Their land and property were seized, culture stripped and historical memories eradicated. In 1948, the same year as the creation of the State of Israel, more than 700,000 Palestinians were forcibly expelled from their homes or fled in fear. But it's it's unlike other uh, similar crimes uh, in the second half of the 20th century, unlike such crimes, it really did not enter the conscience uh, of people and its absence, of course, impacts uh, the way the, the peace process is being conducted, the way Israel is treated, and the way the Palestinians are treated. While commemorated on a single day, the Nakba refers to a series of events that became known in the collective consciousness. Well, there is a Palestinian uh, uh, phrase called the Nakba al-Mustamirra, the ongoing Nakba, which really means the ethnic cleansing of Palestine has never stopped. The Palestinians who remained in their homeland after 1948 were quickly subjected to direct or indirect Israeli rule. And therefore, the same impulse that led the Zionist movement to ethnically cleanse Palestine in 1948 is still there. Uh, It's still part of the DNA of Israel. Uh, The circumstances have changed, and therefore the methods of implementing it have changed over the years. Uh, I think now it's much more piecemeal. It's very uh, uh, minimal. Uh, It's done on a daily basis, uh, but it has an accumulative effect. And for people like Pepe, with crimes against the Palestinian population continuing, the need to remember the Nakba and its continuing effect remains. I think the Nakba Day is, is first and foremost uh, uh, an attempt to connect the history with the present realities and with what might happen uh, in the future, telling people, you know, there's no closure yet to that story. It is ongoing. I hope that uh, in the future there will be more than one day. I think this is something that needs even more attention uh, and uh, more uh, pub- a higher public uh, profile, if, if possible. The struggle to bring attention to the issue of Palestinian rights and the oppression experienced by the Palestinian people has existed since the Nakba. But in April of this year, Human Rights Watch laid out in no uncertain terms what is happening, and who is responsible. Human Rights Watch concludes that Israeli authorities are committing the crimes against humanity of apartheid and persecution. Omar Shakir is the Israel and Palestine director at Human Rights Watch and author of the recent report, A Threshold Crossed, Israeli Authorities and the Crimes of Apartheid and Persecution. This finding is based on an intent or policy to maintain the domination of Jewish Israelis over Palestinians across Israel and the occupied territory, as well as grave abuses committed pursuant to this intent in the occupied Palestinian territory. While many are used to hearing the term apartheid with regards to South Africa, the term was adopted by the Rome Statute of the International Criminal Court in 1998 and declared to be a crime. By branding Israeli actions, 
not without careful reasoning and evidence-based logic, as apartheid, Human Rights Watch are hoping to push the international community to recognise the true nature of Israeli rule. For so long, human rights abuse has been regarded as a symptom of the problem, the main issue being the lack of peace negotiations. Folks have warned that if not for peace or if not for a solution, that apartheid lurked just around the corner, that we were on the brink of reaching that point. Uh, This report finds that apartheid is not some hypothetical or future scenario, that the threshold has been crossed. Apartheid is the reality today for millions of Palestinians and is incumbent on the international community to recognize the reality for what it is. You can't solve a problem you misdiagnose and to take the sorts of human rights measures that a situation of this gravity warrants. By Omar's assessment, the international community is failing in its obligations not only to protect the rights of the Palestinian people from crimes, but also to hold Israel accountable. Look, I mean, the international community certainly has not done enough when it comes to accountability and human rights uh, on the ground. And and I think a big part of this has been the focus on a peace process and the idea that um, the peace process will be the way in which uh, the severe oppression on the ground will be resolved. But the reality today is that a 54-year occupation is not temporary. A 30-year peace process will not dismantle systemic uh, repression depriving millions of Palestinians of their fundamental rights because of who they are is not merely a matter of abuse of occupation. So I think it's incumbent on the international community to take the sorts of steps that a situation of this gravity warrants, which includes um, given impunity on the ground, um, prosecutions, uh, investigations and prosecutions of those implicated um, in serious uh, abuses, um, targeted sanctions against officials who carry out Uh, You know, those abuses, um, conditioning military and security assistance and arms sales on ending uh, serious crimes and evaluating and ending all forms of complicity, uh, you know, in the underlying crimes. Um, I think that's quite important uh, that the international community um, treat this as a situation where crimes against humanity are taking place. Human Rights Watch has reached this finding in other parts of the world, and there we've mandated similar human rights-based mechanisms. So I think the United States, the European Union, uh, European member states, many other countries have a key role to play. Crimes against humanity are defined as such because they're quite literally crimes upon all of us, and it's going to take concerted international action to move us to a better tomorrow. The crimes committed the violations recorded, the rights trampled on, and all the lives suppressed, all build a picture of apartheid. It's a picture that began with the Nakba in 1948, and it continues today. No, the Nakba is absolutely very relevant to the situation today. Today you have, you know, 5.7 million Palestinians who are from this land from Israel or the occupied territory that were expelled or fled their homes that have the right under international law to return here, to live here. Uh, And, you know, as well as, you know, if they prefer the right to compensation or resettlement uh, in a third country uh, that has been denied to them for generations. Also relevant because you have land uh, that was expropriated from owners. So you have Palestinian citizens of Israel today, you know, that still have land that belong to them, that the Israeli government uh, has not, uh, you know, returned to them or provided them with fair compensation for historically, 
And obviously, you know, while the scale, as I noted, is of the Nakba differs from, you know, the reality on the ground, you know, we certainly see people facing multiple rounds of displacement. Uh, and in that sense, for those people, it is, you know, another chapter in, in, in a story of dispossession. Today, the oppression of Palestinians is not solely limited to the locales in which they live and the places they worship, but also has expanded to include the digital sphere. As families in Sheikh Jarrah were threatened with being forcibly expelled from their homes, supporters and activists took to social media to highlight the plight of the people and raise awareness for the crimes being committed and to garner support for the cause. But when their social media posts were mysteriously disappearing, they found that their voices were being silenced. So apparently this has been happening uh, in an intensive way and, uh, since Wednesday. We started to be aware uh, on Thursday morning because many people were approaching us and telling us and uh, asking for our help. This is Nadim Nashif, the general director of the Hamle Centre a non-governmental organization that advocates for Palestinian digital rights. So it includes uh, police brutality, it includes uh, settlers attacking by people walking around, and it includes uh, just people demonstrating, so whatever uh, was posted around Chechnya. At the time of the censorship, certain hashtags were removed from the site, preventing people from viewing related content. One of the new things, specifically on Instagram, that they were blocking hashtags. Like if you, at certain few days, if you were searching for Al-Aqsa hashtag, it was not appearing. Uh, and this is something that Hamli managed to put back uh, through pressure on, on, on Instagram and Facebook. Uh, there were like uh, almost 10 hashtags, uh, trending hashtags that they somehow blocked for some reason. They claimed that it was a technical glitch or whatever. Uh, obviously, it's not true. Uh, but since Saturday, they put them back. With this added pressure and a rush of complaints by social media users, Instagram released a statement calling this a widespread global technical issue and apologised for their actions. But while Instagram blamed technical issues... Nadim is under no doubt who was responsible for the takedowns. Typically, for a post to be taken down that does not violate the platform's community standards, a court order would be required. However... With the Israelis, they have an agreement with the cyber unit, basically, for takedowns that bypass. So they, it's called voluntary takedown because it doesn't have a, a, a court order. And then... Um, by agreement or some kind of understanding between the two sides, the cyber unit submit requests and the, the vast majority of them, by officials who work in the cyber unit, they say it's 90%, that automatically is being taken down. According to Nadim, a source from the Israeli cyber unit has said that 90% of requests for takedowns made by Israel are being agreed to by Facebook and Instagram and the Israeli cyber unit is not working alone. Groups in Israel who have the backing and support of the government are mobilising online to silence opposition. So it's basically like well-organised groups, they have applications, and the application sends you basically a notification asking you to report certain content. So you have thousands of people reporting certain something. They are basically abusing the reporting system because they basically 
report things without reading them, without understanding what the content, somebody tells them, and then thousands of people do that. And then obviously the companies take them down. The attack on digital rights of the Palestinian people represents a new stage in the ongoing Nakba. We call it the war on narrative, basically, because there is somebody who wants to suppress the Palestinian narrative. Uh, and they start saying, like, if you say, I want to go to Al-Aqsa Mosque, to defend Al-Aqsa Mosque, this is incitement for them, you know. Like, incitement is so vague. Incitement and terror and violence are so vague uh, uh, terminologies that they use it for everything. And if you say, we have to get rid of occupation, this is incitement. They, through this, they want to suppress the voices that are criticizing the occupation. Yusra Imran is the writer of Hijab and Red Lipstick, a semi-autobiographical novel that follows the story of Sara, a half-English and half-Egyptian girl, as she navigates living her life between pleasing her father and growing into her own person. Writing the book, Imran draws on real events from her and her peers' lives to create a character based on authentic life experiences. The story starts with Sarah walking to meet Sophie, a BBC journalist at a central London cafe. Despite feeling uneasy, she begins to discuss her life. With Sophie, the reader starts to learn more about the way Sarah grew up with a strict family in London before her life was turned upside down when they decided to move to the culturally sensitive Gulf. There, Sarah's father befriends a group of Orthodox Salafist Muslims, under whose influence he tightened the family's rules and made life unbearable. Thank you, Yusra, for speaking with us today. Thank you so much for having me on the podcast. So I wanted to start by asking you, what was the inspiration for the title Hijab and Red Lipstick? These are two very like superficial outward items. And there's always historically been these sort of myths and and associations made with these two items so with the hijab or the headscarf historically there's been all these sort of stereotypes about women that wear the headscarf that they are hiding themselves away or even with people within you know my own faith community some of them might interpret wearing the hijab as yes you know you should not you should not be seen you know should hide yourself away which in my view is incorrect And then with red lipstick, again, there's all these sort of myths and and associations made with this item of makeup. So even in the West, even in like England, as far as 100 years ago, women that wore red lipstick in public um, were sometimes called harlots or, you know, shameless or cheap or easy. And unfortunately, this is a view that even is held by some in um, in Arab cultures and countries in the Middle East today that women that wear red lipstick outside in public that they're cheap or easy so I sort of wanted to put these two items together just to show that um, things are not always as they seem. And you know it's it's a semi-autobiographical novel so a lot of your personal life is is represented within the story of Sara. Um, so I was wondering why was it so important for you to write this story? So I've always been really open about the fact that um, it's a semi-autobiographical novel based on um, my life experiences and experiences of the girls and women that I grew up with. So similar to the protagonist, I spent my childhood in London and then I moved to the Gulf when I was a teenager and spent 15 years 
living out in the Gulf. When it came down to sitting down and writing my story, I realized that there were still some very real safety and political implications, um, especially around some of the incidents that I write about in the book. And I just felt that writing a piece of nonfiction could have consequences and I didn't really want to put anyone around me, you know, in danger's way. So I did what I think many, many writers out there, many female writers from um, the Arab world and, and South Asia have done where they've put authentic life experiences in the form of a novel, just in many cases for their own safety. So similar to the protagonist, Sarah, in Hijab and Red Lipstick, I found that there was a very drastic shift in family dynamic when I moved from UK to the Gulf. And um, I very quickly found myself as a teenager under the guardianship system, um, finding that um, the male family members and males within my community uh, abused the power that the guardianship system gave them to be very controlling and coercive and even abusive of their female family members. It's a collection of our experiences channeled through the protagonist, Sarah. The story touches upon heavily uh, the subject of gender roles and society's expectations of women and men. Um, how has this been received by the general public? And could you tell me more about why you chose to depict it this way? The story of, you know, my life, my sister's life, my mother's, the women in the community that I grew up with in the Gulf, um, which was a very insular um, Egyptian community that practiced a, what I would call a puritanical interpretation of, of the faith of Islam. Um, I've, been, I've always been very open about the fact that, unfortunately, our lived reality does fall into a certain stereotype. And that is the stereotype of, you know, Muslim girl or Arab girl growing up with strict or aggressive or violent Arab father. Um, I've never claimed that ever to be the experience of all Arab women or all Muslim women. I even like put an author's note at the beginning of the book on purpose, stating very clearly that this is one woman's experience. Not when it came when it came to some of the critiques of the novel, um, it came from readers that were based in the West, and having lived now both in the UK and in the, in the Middle East. Um, I think what I would say to the readers that sort of see such stories of domestic and gender-based violence against Muslim or Arab women perpetrated by their fathers or male family members, I would like them to just think of and check their own privilege that perhaps, yes, this was not their experience. Perhaps they were you know, fortunate and privileged not to know anyone even within their own circle that has gone through such an experience. But the reality on the ground in the Middle East and in the Gulf countries is very different. I've come across more girls and women in my 15 years in the Gulf who've had um, a lived reality similar or even worse than my own, in which our male family members have abused the guardianship system in order to control our everyday movements, in order to, you know, to travel, you know, of higher education, um, I know more women that have that lived reality in my time, in my 15 years in the Gulf, than I do women who haven't. I put my story and the story of my friends out there for the whole world to read. And whether they like it or not, 
it's a lived reality. So as you've said, your experience is not unique to yourself. Many women will find themselves, whether that be in the in the West or in the Gulf or in the Middle East, will find themselves feeling restricted to certain um, expectations of society. So I was just wondering, after writing this book, um, Hijab and Red Lipstick, what is your advice for girls and women like Sara who struggle with fitting into those expectations? The main takeaway and the thing that I, the thing that I most hoped from the book, the book is a, it's a YA young adult novel, so aimed at readers between the age of like 16 and 25. If there are readers who find that they're resonating with Sarah's experience and, and with the sort of toxic family dynamic, that they can see that there is light at the end of the tunnel. I think the other main message that I tried to put across in the book was that in many, in many cases, for Muslim Arab women living in Middle Eastern countries, when they find that they're living in a family situation in which a certain interpretation of the faith is being imposed on them, there's always like this binary that's existed of either you submit and you conform to this, um, you know, patriarchal or puritanical interpretation of the faith, or you leave the faith or you identify as a secular. And I don't think that that's the only way to be. I tried to show that actually there's a third way, a third option in which as a woman, uh, and that could be someone from any faith community. This just doesn't, it doesn't apply only to like a Muslim woman. It could be from any faith community that you can, you are able and capable to practice the faith um, on your own terms in a way that's true to yourself. You're more than capable to read and consult the divine texts for yourself. And men are not the gatekeepers to religion. And that counts for all faiths. Amazing. Thank you for that. Um, just to end our interview here, I was just wondering if you could read a passage from your book which can convey to our listeners what hijab and red lipstick is all about. Mum allowed Safa to take a week off school under the premise that she was sick. Mum and I searched for a child psychologist, but unfortunately in the mid-2000s, there was no such thing. There were psychiatrists who dealt with adults suffering from mental illnesses but no counselling services. So mum and I had to do the counselling with Safa ourselves. None of this is your fault, we repeated over and over to Safa. Don't let Baba make you think otherwise. If Safa was withdrawn before, now she did not even speak. I talked to her and be met with silence. She was losing weight. Most days the only meat she, the only meal she ate was the sandwich that mum made for her packed lunch at school. Safat didn't speak to anyone for a whole month. The first words she said when she broke her silence were around the dinner table one evening where she looked at Baba and said, I don't want to wear the hijab anymore. I expected Baba to say something, but he sat in silence, staring at Safat. You said that wearing the hijab would protect me and it didn't, Safat said. Baba looked down at his plate and he didn't say a word. The next day, Safat went to school minus her headscarf. A few days later, she cut her hair into a short bob with a short straight, straight fringe and she dyed it black with one of those home box dye kits. Still, Baba didn't say anything. 
Safa seemed to have taken mum's comment literally because she took on a new gothic persona completely. Apart from when the animals were over and we were strictly forbidden from being seen or heard, she would play heavy metal, blaring bands like Evanescence and Lacuna Coil. None of us had dared to play English music out loud. Sara, tell Safa to turn that music down. She'll attract the demons and the jinns to the house, father said, as we sat in the living room while Safat's music blared from upstairs. I was gobsmacked that he was allowing heavy metal, a drama of music that conservative Muslims associated with devil worship, to be played out loud. He may not have openly admitted it, but I believe his newfound leniency with Safat was his way of saying that he was sorry for how he had behaved with her. That's it. Wonderful. Thank you so much, Yusra. Thank you again so much for having me on the show. Thank you for listening to The New Arab Voice. This episode was produced by myself, Gaia Karamazza, Hugo Goodridge, and Nick McAlpin. Stay tuned for the next episode of The New Arab Voice, which will come out in two weeks' time. In the meantime, you can listen to all our previous episodes on all podcast platforms. Don't forget to follow The New Arab on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for the latest news from the region.